not. You've got it, even though it's out of control for us. You are our good, good Father. And Lord, as we open up your word now, I pray that it just this time together would be just another part, another steps together of experiencing and knowing and coming to appreciate who you are as our Heavenly Father. So Father, we commit these moments to you. Help us to think deeply, clearly. Help us to open up our hearts to you and say, Lord, whatever you want, I'm yours. Grateful to be yours, but I'm yours. So come and speak to each one of us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a seat, please. So over the last five weeks, we have been on a journey to come to know and experience this abundant life that Jesus Christ said he came to give us in John 10.10. Now, I'm not sure what this journey has been like for you recently, um, but for me, it has not been a stroll in the park. It's been more like a combat mission going in behind enemy lines. You see, the very fact that we face intense opposition or pushback to gain and to keep this life with a capital L that Jesus says he came to give us just goes to show how incredibly important it is. So we have an enemy who is relentless in the battle because he is scared that we will not just discover the power that we've been given by Jesus Christ, but also that we will start the process of being restored to our original trajectory. And so part of that battle is we understand the enemy's tactics. One of his tactics is that he tends to push us to extremes. So on the one hand, we have some who have hijacked the concept of life with a capital L, or this abundant life, and have turned it into the prosperity gospel. So they'll say things like, if you have enough faith... If you will give to my ministry, then Jesus will in turn give you health, wealth, and success. Folks, it's heresy. But then in reactive horror, sometimes to that extreme, some believers flow to the other end, which is to ignore or to minimize the abundant life and assume that the life we now live until we get to heaven is just going to be one long, weary trudge and we live in sad resignation. So should it come an easy surprise then when the watching world sees these two extremes and is not attracted to either because the gospel is not seen as good news and so they belittle the extremes that they see. So what are we doing on these Sunday mornings? My attempt is to try to recapture a balanced biblical perspective. Because the scriptures tell us that everybody has life with a lowercase l. But when a person meets Jesus Christ and has that transforming experience of being rescued by him, they are at that very moment given life with a capital L. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 13, which I've mentioned before, describes that moment like this. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. It's a verse like that that reminds us there was a deadness inside of us. 
and then something has been brought to life. Lowercase l transformed into capital L. Or Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 also mentions the change that occurs at that time. Paul writes and says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. There is literally a kind of resurrection that happens. And so this new capital L type of life gives me a profound sense every day of having been blessed by my Heavenly Father. This is what we saw in Ephesians 1, verse 3, where you've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Which means He's personally selected me. We've seen this already. Which means because of what God's done, then I matter. God has lovingly adopted me. Which means now I belong to Him. God has graciously rescued me. That's the third card in our hand, which means I've been set free. And last week, God has wisely informed me, which means I get it. I I get it in the sense that life makes sense because God has revealed the larger story of what he is doing. So this morning, Ephesians 1, so if you have your Bibles, turn there again. This is where we're headed again. We're going to add the fifth card to our hand. The fifth card that also has the potential to radically alter our lives. It did for me just a few years ago. Just a few years ago. But before we look at Ephesians 1, and we're going to be looking at verse 11 and verse 12 this morning, I need to ask you to do something with me this morning, and I'm going to ask you to trust me and to engage in... Well, to engage your creative imagination in a rather unique way. Now, let me tell you that what we're going to do in just a moment is exactly what Jesus did on a number of occasions when he invited his audience to personally enter into a story that he was telling them and then after experiencing that story as if they were in it, then to evaluate how they would have responded if the scenario he had painted had actually happened to them. Okay, you going to go with me on this? Okay. So what I want you to do is just I want you to close your eyes. And the reason I'm going to ask you to close your eyes is just simply because it will reduce the distractions for a few minutes. So close your eyes with me. And I don't want you to open them until I tell you to. And I want you to enter into this story. I want you to stop it for a moment and just picture. I want you to picture that you are sitting in a waiting room with a number of other people. And you're there because you have an appointment. An appointment to meet with God, your Heavenly Father. You're understandably a bit nervous, but you're also excited. And eventually your name is called, and so you stand and you enter a doorway into a very large, darkened room. As your eyes adjust, you realize there are no furniture, no decorations, and yet the very far end of the room is a single window which allows you to see a robed and hooded figure with his back to you. He's standing by a small table and he's reading something that's in his hands. Your footsteps echo on the hardwood floor as you walk across the room and approach the figure standing there. This is the meeting you've been called to. Just you and your Heavenly Father. 
As you walk up, the figure turns towards you. The light from the single window highlights his face as he looks at you and eye contact is made. Okay, pause. Hit the stop button. Freeze that frame right where you are. Look, what is the expression in your heavenly father's face? How is he looking at you? What do you see in his eyes? Okay, open your eyes now. What in the world was that? It might be important to begin by explaining what we just did there to remember that the Old Testament saints were men and women who sought the face of God. Let me give you some scriptures. Psalm 27, 8. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, O Lord, I shall seek. Psalm 105, starting at verse 3. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Look to the Lord and His strength. Seek His face always. Let me give you one more. John 12. Some non-Jewish Greeks had come to the Passover celebration in Jerusalem and they heard about Jesus and all the things that He was doing. And so they came and found one of the disciples, Philip, and they asked Him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So if you think about it in terms of a, on a horizontal level between us and, and another people, there is no real relationship with another individual unless we get face to face with them. There is no meaningful communication unless we're face to face with somebody. We really don't know what that other person is thinking or feeling without seeing their face. And most important, we don't know what they think of us without seeing their face. Okay, now back to the imaginary scenario that I just had you walk through with me. What expression did you see on God's face? How was he looking at you? Eight years ago... I sat in a seminar with Brennan Manning at the Navigator headquarters in Colorado Springs when he led the group of us that were there in this very same scenario that we, I just walked you all through. Guess what I saw in my, in my Abba's face? Sadness. And I realized that day that despite all the biblical truth that I knew, that all the years I I had lived of reciting correct biblical theology about God's love, what I really believed was that God was disappointed in me. What expression did you see? Anger? Frustration? Annoyance with you? Maybe some of you saw indifference. Maybe some of you saw the warmth of his love. For some of you, it's not unusual that you didn't see anything at all. It was almost as if his face was blurred or indistinct. We're going to talk about why you saw what you saw this morning. Because the life that Jesus Christ came to give us, that we're exploring here in Ephesians chapter 1, this life of the capital L is, is, is meant to come and to bring healing to some of the deepest wounds that we have down at the heart level. 
It's, it's meant to release us from bondage of, of that because we have made spiritual agreements with the lies and deceptions that have come to us from our enemy. And when we seek the face of God, like even Old Testament saints did, we are assured by God's truth that we are going to see in His face the expression that we are delightfully treasured. That's Ephesians 1, verse 11 and 12. Let's go explore it this morning. Look at how Paul begins. Look at just the opening statement of Ephesians 1.11. He says, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, what Paul literally wrote, the Greek language that he used, he, he was writing and he said, literally, in Christ, we were appointed by lot. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm not sure what translation you're using this morning. Many of your translations are going to interpret that phrase by Paul, in Christ we were appointed by lot, to mean that as the portion, that it's describing the portion of God's inheritance that we have received in Christ. That's how the English Standard Version, which I'm using this morning, it could be, that's the way way your New American Standard, for those of you who are using that this morning, translate it. But actually the words that Paul uses here, And the context, which we're going to look at in just a moment, it actually suggests the opposite perspective. Paul is not referring to the inheritance that we have received, which he's going to talk about next Sunday. But rather, he's talking about how we have been claimed by as we have been claimed as God's inheritance. In fact, if you have the, I don't think very many of you probably have it, but if you had the new English translation in front of you, what's called the Net Bible, it's got the best translation of Ephesians 1.11 when it reads this, In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession. So by the way, if you are using the English Standard Version or the New American Standard, I would suggest adding just two little words to make this really clear what Paul is after. In him we have been, add the word been, obtained as, add that word, in an inheritance. Now let me explain why I think it's the opposite perspective than what some of these translations are suggesting to us. Here's why. The statement that Paul is making here in Ephesians 1, the first part of verse 11, he's reaching back into the Old Testament imagery of possessing an inheritance. Let me just remind you, many of you probably already know this well. But remember, it took 40 years of Israel wandering in the desert before they entered into the promised land. After conquering their enemies, then the land was portioned out among the various tribes, which means everybody got their slice of the pie. Every family was given an inheritance, a section of land that was to be their own, their own special possession. So in the, in the Old Testament, the word inheritance and the, and the word special possession became synonymous. I mean, just think of the dramatic change that occurred to Israel at that time. They were used to wandering like nomads in the desert, and now they each have their own estate. They don't have to travel any longer. They're home. The desert, it was harsh. It it was barren. Their inheritance is now lush. It's fertile. During the Exodus, the only possessions they had were that which they could carry. 
Their inheritance now, it came fully furnished. Homes, vineyards, herds of sheep, herds of cattle. Imagine the excitement that they were experiencing as they, as they got to each have their own slice of this pie. The joy that was there, the utter delight in being given such a rich inheritance. The, the title to it was free and clear. All they had to do was enjoy it. By the way, do you know what the Hebrew word for wow is? Wow. No, I'm just teasing. It's not. I think, I think it's probably hallelujah. But, uh, but that's what they were probably shouting when they got their inheritance. This is the background to Paul's statement here in Ephesians 1.11. God has claimed us as his special possession. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. I'm going to give you a couple of verses here to write down here taking notes. Deuteronomy 7.6. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people his treasured possession. Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 2. You've been set apart as holy to the Lord your God, and He has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be His own special treasure. How about Psalm 33 and verse 12? How blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom He has chosen to be His special possession. One more, Psalm 135 and verse 4. For the Lord has chosen Jacob to be his own, Israel to be his treasured possession. Now, some of you are jumping on ahead of me, and you're saying, okay, yeah, Rick, but, but he's talking about Israel. And that's true, he is talking about Israel. But the New Testament authors grab this concept and bring it into the New Testament for us. For example, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting at verse 9. Peter writes and says, For you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. See some of the repetitive language from the Old Testament? You're God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Which means... In the same way that God considered Israel to be his special possession in the Old Testament, he now sees us, his followers, in this generation in the exact same way. We are his delightful treasure. And part of what Jesus accomplished by dying on the cross was to cause us as believers to become an inheritance to God, a special possession to our Savior. And to our Heavenly Father. And this is this fits in the context. Look back in Ephesians 1. Look at verse 17 and verse 18. After talking about all these wonderful things in, in life with a capital L that are blessings from God to us, Paul ends chapter 1 by a prayer. Look at verse 17. Paul says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Enlightened for what? What does he want us to understand? First, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And second, watch this, what is the immeasurable greatness... No, excuse me, I've jumped ahead. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Okay, so, if that's who we are, 
then what expression is on God's face for his special possession? I think Zephaniah 3.17 tells us a little bit. The Lord your God is in your midst. He is a warrior who can deliver. He takes great delight in you. He renews you by his love. He shouts for joy over you. There's the expression of your Father in heaven, his face towards you. When he looks at you, it's one of great delight. It's it's, it's one that breaks out in shouts of joy when he sees you. He wants his love to renew us. Folks, that's how treasured we are to him. Here's another one, Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1 and verse 4. Fear not, for I have redeemed you, God says. I have called you by name. You are mine. You are precious and honored in my sight, and I love you. Which means that the expression on our Heavenly Father's face when he looks at us is is, is that he's one, hey, I've called you by your name. I, I see you as precious. His face reflects that he honors us and that he loves us. And these are just a couple of verses, but it's verses like this that that when they become less theological information in our heads and more transforming truth in our hearts, then we begin to radically define ourselves as being highly treasured by our God. And that's the fifth card. The fifth card is that we are delightfully valued by our God. Which means then we are treasured. And the impact of that radical definition is nothing less than amazing. In fact, John Lynch, he's a pastor over in the Phoenix area, has said, truth trusted transforms. Truth not trusted anesthetizes. So agreeing that a truth is true doesn't change our lives. Our hearts have to believe it. Our hearts have to trust it. And when we do, some powerful things begin to happen. We quit clinging to empty evaluations of ourselves. Our identity is no longer in the in performance or possessions or in pleasing other people. It creates a humble gratitude within us when this truth is believed and trusted. We begin to say, look how, how much God treasures me when I don't deserve it. A humble gratitude. It frees us up to serve others instead of competing with them to have our worth validated. Gives us the courage to face our, our issues of shame and to become less of a driven person in life. See, this was all part of what transformed me. After that seminar with Brendan Manning, I remember taking some time to get alone with the Lord. And he led me to realize that at that point I had I had been in ministry as a pastor for about 20 years. And he led me to realize how much of that time of those 20 years I tried to minister to others with mixed motives. Too much of the time, my motives were I was trying to prove something. Trying to prove something to myself. 
He's trying to prove something to my earthly father who was alive at that time. But to make sure that we don't cross the line over into thinking that this larger story is about us, remember we talked about that last week? Look at Paul's language in the rest of verse 11. Look where the rest of verse 11 takes us. So yes, it's true that in him we have been obtained as an inheritance, but notice where he goes next. He says, but all of this, this that we've been obtained as an inheritance, it's been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. See, being treasured, Paul's reminding us, being treasured is not earned. It's a blessing simply to receive. Remember what 2 Timothy 1.9 tells us. God saved us, called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So the reality of being delightfully valued, as Paul's reminding us here, is part of God's larger story. It's what we saw last week in verse 9. It's part of something that's happening according to his plan and purpose. Now look at verse 11 again. And all this is being done according to the counsel of his will. In other words, the idea when Paul uses that language is he's trying to communicate that God chose a plan after deliberately or deliberating on the wisest course of action which would accomplish his purpose. It's all being done by because God wants it. So part of our being restored to our original trajectory, this, this wonderful, warm, loving relationship that we enter into with the Heavenly Father by Jesus Christ, is we begin to radically define ourselves as being delightfully valued, or by being treasured by our God. We begin to see ourselves as God sees us. And yet it's interesting what the does, because as wonderful as that is, and folks, that is absolutely wonderful stuff, it's still ultimately not about me. It's about God's glory. Look where Paul takes us now. We are delightfully treasured so that others will delight to treasure him. Look at, look at verse 12. Just like in Christ, it, the saints of old, we too have been claimed as God's special possession. So yes, in him we have been obtained as an inheritance. Now look at verse 12. So that, why have we been t- obtained as an inheritance? So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. His work that he does in us on Christ by Christ, because of the work of Christ is meant for God's glory to be seen. Again, put this, put this into context. Adam and Eve, they lost something that we can begin to experience once again. We can enter into that warm, personal relationship with the Creator who made us because that's what we were created for. And when others then, others around us, begin to see that, that transformation inside of us, as we live in being delightfully treasured by our God, it will cause them then to delight to treasure our God too. 
They'll worship God for His compassion in reaching out to lost and hurting people. They'll honor Him for the power which accomplishes the needed rescue in anybody's life, ours included. And they'll praise His name because He treats people with grace in Christ. And even if, though, in our lifetime, there are those who have been so blinded that they can't or they won't see the work God has done for us in Christ, there is going to come a day when everyone will praise His glorious work. It's going to come. There's going to come a time when all of God's people from every generation is going to be gathered before Him. Everyone who has ever responded to God by faith from the days of Adam all the way up to to God's final coming, they're going to be there in this large mass of, of people, this great crowd. It's going to be made up of people from every generation, every culture, Jew and Gentile alike. And God is going to point to us on that day. And with immense pleasure say, look at these who are mine. Look at what my power and purposes have brought about in rescuing them from sin and having them stand here before me, holy and pure in my Son, Jesus Christ. These people are my treasured possession. They are precious to me, and I have great delight in them. That's going to happen one day. Everyone is going to honor God for His incredible purposes. That were put together by grace. So the word delightfully valued. It was hard for me a couple of weeks ago to watch on television, like many of you did, the raging fires that were out of control up in the Napa Valley area, and to watch the utter devastation that occurred. But it got me thinking, what if my house was in the path of a wildfire and there was absolutely nothing I could do to stop it? And I had 60 seconds, that's all, 60, maybe 90, 60 to 90 seconds to grab whatever was most valuable to me and run with it. If that was your situation, what would you take in your arms out of your house? Again, you only have 60 to 90 seconds to make that decision and do it. Um, some of you might grab your laptop computer, um, a photo album or photo albums or a treasured heirloom that's been passed through the family. I mean, I don't know, but the reality is what you take will be what you treasure the most, isn't it? Second Peter chapter 3 tells us that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. My friends, a fire is coming. And what is the most valuable treasure that our Heavenly Father is going to make sure gets out? Let's let Jesus tell us. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am. We are who he so values. He's going to rescue that coming fire. Because we're delightfully valued. Treasured. His special possession. Folks, it's taken me almost eight years. But more and more, it's a fight, but more and more I'm beginning to see my Heavenly Father's face looking at me and it's lovingly welcoming. Even on my worst days. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. Paul has invited us this morning to learn to radically define ourselves like this. Father, I know the work that you have done in my heart, and yet you know how I realize there is so much further yet to go. And many of us are in that same place. Father, there are some here this morning that in imagining what, how you would look at them, they see you with eyes of love. But there are so many of us that that creative, imaginative story touches something deep in us that we realize it's an area of work yet to be accomplished to know and believe the love you have for us in Christ. Father, thank you, though, that we are your treasured possession. Not, again, because of anything we've done. We don't earn it. It's not like you sit in heaven and say, well, boy, I'm glad he's on my team. We don't deserve anything but your wrath. But we are the objects of your love because you've just chosen us. Lord, we're humbled by that. We're grateful for that. And may that come to radically define our lives as we begin to see all the more who we are in your eyes. So, Father, may as you see us, may that be the way we see ourselves too. So we pray that you would do that. I pray you do it in me. pray that you do that inside each of my brothers and sisters here because that's part of life with a capital L. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.